I think planning in this disease process for multiple things is just very useful in preparing for what might be ahead. We know you might get some curveballs along the way with the disease progression. So planning really helps. And that way you're not scrambling last minute and becoming stressed and just keeping organized as much as possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Jessica Chapman, my co-host for these past several months, is enjoying some much-needed time off this week. Well, October 4th through 8th marks Malnutrition Awareness Week. And according to the American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, malnourished patients have higher healthcare costs, longer hospital stays, and worse health outcomes. The theme for this year's Malnutrition Awareness Week is Nutrition is a Human Right. The challenges of maintaining proper nutrition are front and center for so many people living with ALS and their families. Muscle weakness or loss of muscle function may make it difficult for people with ALS to eat enough to meet their nutritional needs. Swallowing may become difficult. Meal preparation can become onerous. And fatigue, constipation, or a decreased appetite all can contribute to malnutrition. Caregivers are also at risk of malnutrition. A recent ALS-focused survey found that caregivers spend more than 30 hours per week providing care, with 56% of caregivers saying they worry about the lack of time to relax or engage in self-care. These constraints on time can make shopping and meal preparation difficult for caregivers. And when I reflect on this concept of nutrition as a human right, I'm reminded of our commitment to making ALS a livable disease, to empower people with ALS to live their lives as they want with greater engagement and autonomy. So it is this week that we are turning to Stephanie Doback, a clinical dietitian at the Jefferson Weinberg ALS Center in Philadelphia, to get some tips on maintaining proper nutrition in people with ALS and their caregivers. Well, Stephanie, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, exciting. Uh, you know, Malnutrition Awareness Week, uh, always an important time for the ALS community. But before we get into that, can you just introduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about how you came into the world of nutrition and specifically how you came in the world of nutrition for the ALS community? Absolutely. So like you said, my name is Stephanie Dobak, and I work at the Jefferson Weinberg ALS Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I joined the Weinberg ALS Center a year and a half ago. And prior to that, I covered neurology in the hospital for 12 years, and I specialized in the neuro ICU. And while I absolutely loved that job in the hospital, I felt I didn't have enough time to connect with a patient or family as much as I'd like to and really serve the whole person. So as we know, ALS is raw and it's real and it's really the great equalizer. Um, It doesn't care if you're a CEO or janitor. So I really just love coming alongside people with ALS and doing life with them, getting to know them, help support them um, and help them live a purpose-filled life. So it's an amazing job and I'm very thankful for it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that the people you work with are, are thankful for you being there and, and the role that you play. Many listeners at home are, are, are well aware of the role that nutrition plays, but can you just kind of walk through how nutrition fits into the uh, care team generally and what the typical conversations that you have with patients might be? Absolutely. I mean, I'm completely biased, but I think adequate nutrition and hydration is super important. Adequate nutrition helps you maintain your energy stores. So your in, your muscles, your organs, the brain, they all need nutrients to function properly. And if they're deprived of nutrients, they start shutting down to preserve energy. And we know that ALS is physically exhausting. 
And I know with patients, we talk a lot about energy conservation and making sure our patients have enough energy to do the things they love. So getting enough nutrients is one way to maintain energy stores. And we also need adequate nutrition to help us have a strong immune system and fight off illnesses. So we're still in the midst of a pandemic here and winter is right around the corner. So we just wanna make sure those immune systems are as strong as possible. And we also need proper nutrition to maintain or gain weight. And as part of the nature of this disease, people with ALS lose muscle mass. But however, if you do not take in enough calories, your body will start eating away at both your fat and your muscle stores to get energy. So this expedites the muscle loss process and therefore the disease progression. So studies have shown that people with ALS who have a little extra weight on them, those with a BMI or what we call body mass index in the lower 30s actually progress slower than those who either lose weight or start at a lower weight. So with ALS, the goal is to maintain weight or even gain weight if you're on the thinner side. And so that's my role with the ALS patients. Obviously, for many patients, the ability to chew, the ability to swallow becomes compromised or, or lost entirely. Uh, what are the conversations around maintaining nutrition when the ability to eat and take in nutrients becomes compromised? There's actually a ton of causes of what we consider malnutrition in the ALS population. And really, that's the beauty of ALS clinics and that you have access to the different clinicians who may help you combat the different barriers impacting your nutrition. So as you mentioned, swallowing difficulty is a huge one. And I work closely with our speech language pathologist um, who may recommend adjusting your diet texture to make it easier to chew and swallow. There's also communication barriers. So sometimes people with ALS lose their ability to talk and working with speech language pathologists again, or even assistive technologist specialists may be beneficial to ensure um, our patients can communicate their nutrition requests. And some, some patients deal with the difficulty of feeding themselves or being able to cook or grocery shop and get around there. And that's where our physical therapists and occupational therapists come in hand. They can teach ways to compensate or give patients the tools they need to help in those areas. For patients living alone who can't cook or grocery shop, we have social workers who can provide assistance in setting up programs such as Meals on Wheels, um, which deliver meals to your doors. I think another big barrier is fatigue. And we find that fatigue often be associated with poor sleep or compromised breathing. So our pulmonologist or respiratory therapist can help get patients the equipment they need to support their breathing. So they're not spending a ton of energy a day just trying to breathe and being too tired to eat meals so they skip meals. We know there's also depression, which also goes hand in hand with poor appetite. And I can't undermine the difficulty of this disease. And we know depression can make it hard to eat. So that's why we have our physicians, our nurse practitioners, our physician assistants, our mental health nurses and social workers to help offer help through support groups or medications. And lastly, people with ALS just burn more calories than mm. people without ALS. And even as physical activity decreases, people with ALS require a ton of calories as their bodies are just trying to reroute ways to work and compensate for those lost muscles. So eating high calorie foods and snacks and drinking high calorie drinks like Ensure and Boost, um, also while working with a dietitian like me, may help them maintain their weight. 
you mentioned earlier that we're still in a pandemic and obviously in the last, we've talked about it so much on this show over the last 18 months or so, how, how telemedicine and advances in access to telehealth has really transformed so many aspects of, of the healthcare delivery system. Can you talk a little bit about how your role has been able to utilize some of the telehealth access that has been made available? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic is obviously a terrible thing, but I love how it has created access for people that can't usually access a clinic. I mean, some of our patients were coming two hours away just so that they could come to our clinic. So especially when you become less mobile and when you have transportation barriers, I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to offer telehealth. And that way we can see our patients. We can't give the full exam that we would like to, but I think it offers a lot of benefits. Um, we can even see around the house, what kind of snacks they have on hand and be able to kind of get a glimpse into their home and see where, what areas we can work with. I'm struck by your point about people who are far away and maybe weren't able to access the care even outside of the pandemic and some of the quarantine rules that have been put in place. Uh, and I know that's a big part of the fights going forward to continue that access. You're looking at diet restrictions or diet recommendations. Is there a specific diet that, that you recommend or are there specific aspects of a diet for, for a person with ALS that you would recommend or, or that come up in, in your conversations with patients? Great question. And I would say this is probably my most popular question. I would love to say there is a special diet for ALS patients, but unfortunately, not really. Well-rounded diet is best, um, but most studies are focusing on the importance of getting in adequate calories and protein. So I'm often recommending pairing a nutrient-dense or what we would consider a more healthy food with a high-calorie food. So adding gravies or sauces to your chicken or meats to get in extra calories for vegetables, adding a butter or cheese sauce or some extra olive oil. To fruits, adding sugar or whipped cream. And then having high calorie but healthy snacks, such as cheese and crackers, guacamole and chips, um, peanut butter, bananas. But at the end of the day, really whatever gets patients to their calorie goals. So if they need that extra scoop of ice cream or a side of French fries, I'm okay with that as well. Sounds like there's opportunities to inject some variety into, into the daily diet. I want to talk a little bit about caregivers. It's something that comes up a lot. We hear from so many people that we talk to that while they're managing their disease progression, they're concerned about their caregivers, the state of mind, their caregivers' health. So two-part question here. I'll start with first, what can caregivers do in their role to support adequate nutrition in, in the loved one that they're taking care of? Yeah, and caregivers, I mean, we know that the caregiver burden is high in this population. And I think nutrition is one of those more simple aspects where they think they can manage versus respiratory issues or something like that. But I think the number one point is to be able to keep mealtime fun. So in, um, eating with your loved one or inviting company over. Again, it should be a fun environment. Um, people often eat more when they're in a social environment. So surrounding mealtimes with pleasant conversations, making it something everybody looks forward to. I'm talking about the smell or enjoyment of the food. I'm even inviting like a grandchild over to bake cookies makes it a little bit more fun. Sure. I think I'm practicing family style dining where the serving dishes are on the table. So you don't have to get up to go to the kitchen for more portions. I'm lazy when it comes to cooking. So I even recommend using the pots and pans you cooked in to just put on the table and serve from there. That way you don't have to clean additional dishes. 
For our patients where chewing and swallowing becomes more problematic, just preparing soft foods, chopped bite-sized foods like cottage cheese or scrambled eggs or applesauce. I'm just watching out for choking hazards like grapes or hot dogs. Salads really um, are the first thing to go in a lot of our patients. But then keeping a food diary of the foods that might cause more problems. For those with difficulty self-feeding, if you offer finger foods like sandwiches or hamburgers or chicken fingers or drumsticks, um, some veggies and dip or cheese sticks or fruit slices, things like that are more easy to feed um, versus things like soups or where you'd have to cut like a steak. Sure. Larger meals can be a little bit more intimidating and our patients often run out of energy. So offering small frequent meals like five or six smaller meals a day can be more helpful than three large meals. And lastly, I just say support your loved one however they need to be supported. Most people want to maintain independence as much as possible. And this may make mealtimes more messy while they try to feed themselves. And I just encourage you not to worry about it and just give them the support that they need. Great advice. Yeah, another aspect of the caregiver journey is caregiver burnout, caregiver stress. What conversations do you have around, you know, maintaining proper nutrition for caregivers? I would say it's probably like the same as a with the patients themselves. And this really goes for anybody. I am a mom. I obviously work. I have two kids. So I think I'm all about simplifying the meal process. So number one, I would say ask for help. I'm actually a pastor's wife as well. And whenever somebody's sick at our church, members bring meals to those people. And people actually want to bring meals because it's a simple and practical way of showing that they care. So just when people ask, how can I help, ask them for meals. You can also batch cook. So make double the meal size you usually do and freeze half of it to use at a later time. So that way you're only cooking once. Using one pot meals, that way you can save time on cleanup. It's winter time, so get out your crock pot. These are wonderful and there are a ton of recipes online. You just dump everything into the crock pot, let it do its magical thing over hours. I don't even know how it works, but you come back to a wonderful meal. One of one of those great mysteries of life. How does the <laughs> crock pot work? Yes, God bless the inventor of the crock pot. <laughs> Indeed. Also repeating meals. So that way you can save some brain space on meal planning. So knowing that Friday night is pizza night or Mexican Mondays. There, I mean, we also live in the day where you can have home delivered meals, either ones that are pre-prepared or that send you portioned ingredients and directions to cook like HelloFresh or Blue Apron. I know even Instacart is popular right now. So you can pick out your, all your groceries. Um, you can save your grocery list from week to week and have those staples that just adjust as needed. And that way you can either pick up your groceries at the grocery store um, or have a professional shopper just shop for you and have it delivered. And then don't knock on just having smoothies or protein shakes. It's easy to throw some like Greek yogurt, some nut butter, fruit, some spinach into a blender, and then you have a full, well-balanced meal. And then lastly, there's also those healthy fast foods or grocery store prepared foods, like just going and buying a rotisserie chicken, a baguette, you know, pre-packaged salad, a dessert, and you have a meal that is well-balanced, but somebody made for you. <laughs> Uh, some great tips that I might actually incorporate and, and need to incorporate into my own meal planning. But, you know, it sounds, Stephanie, like 
planning is a big part of it. And, and that's probably true for everybody who is, is trying to figure out, you know, how am I getting my nutrients this week? Does planning become a bigger part of that conversation that you have? And like maybe when you're first onboarding a new patient and the importance of having, having a meal plan, having that menu for the week, having those ingredients that, that you, you know, putting that grocery list together, that sort of planning. Yes. I think planning in this disease process for multiple things is just very useful in preparing for what might be ahead. We know you might get some curveballs along the way with the disease progression. So planning really helps. And that way you're not scrambling last minute and becoming stressed and just keeping organized as much as possible. As the disease progresses, you know, many people with ALS and, and their caregivers and their loved ones have to begin the conversation around feeding tubes. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach that conversation and, and the guidance that you give your patients when that topic comes up? Yeah, absolutely. I think many of us associate feeding tubes with those people who are in a minimally conscious state or with advanced dementia in a nursing home. And I would say, honestly, from the majority of my patients who have already completed advanced directive prior to that ALS diagnosis, they say that they would never want artificially administered nutrition and hydration. No, absolutely not. Um, but however, that's really not the case with a lot of our ALS patients. Our goal with offering a feeding tube is to help optimize their quality of life. So the feeding tubes we use in ALS go directly into the stomach. And ideally, patients get the feeding tube early when they're showing some weight loss or when swallowing difficulty begins. And again, our nutrition goal is to maintain weight and muscle mass as much as possible. But also, if a patient's breathing function declines past a certain point, it may make the surgery and the anesthesia more risky, which is why we bring this up sooner rather than later. Many of my patients can still eat with a feeding tube, and that's actually what we prefer. We know eating is a huge factor in quality of life, and the feeding tube is usually used to provide supplemental nutrition at first. And that way, patients aren't spending multiple hours of their day trying to get in enough food and hydration, or they're not having this huge fear of choking at meals. They can safely eat what they're able to eat and use the feeding tube to supplement the rest. And that offers them the time and energy to spend doing other activities they'd like to do during their day. However, feeding tubes are not the best choice for everyone. So I really encourage every patient to have open conversations with their loved ones and healthcare team to see if it's the best decision for them. Uh, helpful advice. You know, you mentioned earlier that winter is around the corner, uh, you know, bringing out the crock pots, thinking about the soups and stews that we haven't had for, for several months. Winter also brings several holidays that tend to be focused around eating and dining. Thanksgiving, certainly Christmas, and in my family, New Year's Day is, is all about sauerkraut and pork. <laughs> Curious what conversations, if any, you have around holiday meal planning. Well, I think most of our holidays or events in life in general are surrounded with food. And luckily the, the holidays are full of high calorie food. So that's good for me when I'm recommending high calorie foods for my patients. Absolutely. And I mean, even with Thanksgiving, a lot of the meals are softer foods. So if you have your turkey adding in some gravy or mixing into the mashed potatoes, so it's softer and easier to get it down, having the 
the green bean casserole and the pumpkin pie. But um, just eating what you can, focusing on the joyfulness of the holiday, not putting a ton of emphasis on the food if that's problematic, if you fear that you're going to choke in front of somebody, um, just doing what you can um, and really just being grateful for what you do have. Uh, such a hopeful note to wrap things up on. Uh, Stephanie, any other thoughts as we uh, join here today to talk about nutrition awareness and nutrition specifically for the ALS community? Yeah, I would think, especially with malnutrition, we really picture these people with protruding bones, almost skeleton-like, but even overweight and obese people can be malnourished. It's really just a matter of weight loss and not eating as much as possible. So just because you feel like you still have a lot of weight on you, if you're losing weight, that's still a sign that you could be flirting with some malnutrition or undernutrition. So it's never too early to focus on your nutrition and ask your healthcare team for pointers. In other words, we shouldn't just focus on nutrition one week of the year, but maybe every day. Yes, absolutely. All right. I'll keep that in mind and we'll share resources on nutrition support for listeners in the show notes. Uh, Stephanie, thanks so much for being with us this week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again to our special guest this week, Stephanie Doback, a clinical dietitian at the Jefferson Weinberg ALS Center in Philadelphia. We will be sure to share some resources on proper nutrition in the show notes. A quick programming note, Jessica Chapman, who has been so gracious with her time to help co-host the show these last several months, is going to be stepping away. She will be back from time to time to help pilot the ship, but we are very excited to be bringing some fresh new voices into the mix. So stay tuned for more information on some of the new voices we'll be bringing to you. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Connecting ALS. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you are there, please find an opportunity to rate and review us. It is a great way for us to find even more listeners to connect with. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Music